Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3, page 1184. I want to read from verse 15 through to verse 21. And we're going to look at verses 18 to 21. Colossians 3 verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. We're going to look at verses 18 to 21. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are controversial. In my experience, nothing causes so much trouble as these verses and trying to explain them. Um, that is not the reason that my wife is in the nursery this morning. Uh, or that half the elders are missing. That's a very interesting coincidence. But it, it does create all kinds of questions and difficulties. And people approach this passage with a whole set of presuppositions and defenses that are in there already. When I, I announced last Sunday... Basically, we were going to look at this passage because last Sunday we looked at verse 17, so verse 18 comes next. When I announced that, someone who shall remain nameless, one of my elder's wives, who's here today, sitting at the front, uh, said, <laughs> said, it's not fair because next week we're going to get wives submit to your husbands and we're away on holiday when it's going to be husbands love your wives. And then she looked at me and said, oh no, you're not going to quote me, are you? And I said, nah. I'm not. That often is really how we, how we look at things. And people would expect you to take up these four verses and spend a great deal of time talking about family relationships and so on. I'm not going to. I'm going to take them together because I think they are together. They are not disconnected from verse 17, from verses 15 to 17 that we looked at. And, it, I mean, it does astound me that there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books about family and how to care for your family and so on, how to be a better husband, better wife, things like that. It does astound me that there's all that. And yet, sometimes I fear that a lot of these books, although they take, from a Christian perspective, they take these verses, or more normally the verses in Ephesians, they miss the context and miss the point of what is being said. Now we, um, you, hopefully I'll explain that in a moment. Obviously marriage is a big issue with us at the moment. I have never in my life been at three weddings in three days before. Uh, it was a very interesting experience and they were all great and all very, very different. I think we also ought to say in all seriousness that the major cause of strain on most people is their relationships and the problems and difficulties that arise there and the hassles and troubles and as N.T. Wright puts it, the many varieties of domestic blackmail that occur in homes. And it, it, you've got to say that the Bible does have something to say about it, but it's maybe not what we would expect. The Bible doesn't teach a great deal about how to have a successful marriage. 
It does tell us about our relationship with God, and it does tell us how that impacts other relationships, and especially, of course, our family ones. So you could go to Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, Titus 2, verses 1 to 10, 1 Peter 2, 18, and onwards. But I want to look at these four verses, verses 18 to 21, under the title of functional families. We, we hear a lot about dysfunctional families. How can we have functional families? Now immediately, it may be that there are some of you here and say, well, that's got nothing to do with me because I'm young, free, and single. Or I'm old, free, and single. Uh, this is all about families and so I can switch off. No. What's interesting about this letter is that it was a public letter written to a church in Colossae in modern-day Turkey. It was having some difficulties. And the whole letter was read out, including the instructions that are given here to the whole church. I think this is about how we conduct all our relationships. And for those of you, for example, who are not yet married, you need to think about that. Now, you might think, you see, you may have grown up with a generation that says, well, marriage is something that happens when you fall in love and eventually, after a while, you decide that you're going to get married. It's basically something that happens to you. Now, my colleague in Central Baptist Church, Jim Turns, uh, I heard of a sermon he preached a couple of weeks ago where apparently, according to the young person who was telling me this, he wandered completely off track. He was talking about Abraham and uh, gave a row to the young men in the congregation. I will repeat what he said because I totally agree with it. It's com- and it's not completely off topic. I don't think he, pro- he was off topic either. But he basically said to the guys, what's wrong with you guys? There's lots of lovely young ladies in this congregation. Get out there and get them. Now, maybe that's a paraphrase of what he said. But (laughs) that's how it was understood. So if Jim ever hears this and you report him to me, then maybe, maybe the person who was speaking to me picked it up wrong. But in a sense, I, I understand exactly what he was saying and the kind of frustration he feels. Because people think that marriage is something that happens to you. Rather than something that you think about that, okay, you can really plan. I mean, at the wedding, at Izzy's wedding, I have to say this, I thought the most amusing bit was where in one of the speeches, somebody, I think it may even have been David, it was David, yes, David said that Izzy had bought her wedding dress nine months before he proposed to her. So she was planning. (laughs) She was there, you know, she she knew where she was going and what he was going to ask eventually. Um, And that's... That's what I call optimism or or planning or knowing things. But most of us, most people don't plan in that respect. I was greatly, greatly impressed with um, Alistair's parents saying that from the day he was born, they prayed that two things, God would make him a Christian and God would give him a Christian wife. You know, I think, uh, I think that We forget, those of us who are parents, forget the importance of doing that as well. And so when we're looking at this, we're saying, no, this is just for people who are already in uh, a marriage relationship or they've got children, whatever. All of us are in family relationships, even if we are single. We're still connected in different ways with people. And it is about how we conduct all of our relationships as well. Now, here's where I think the mistake is made with this passage. People go from verse 18, and that's where they start. They don't realize the context it's in, and the context is from verse 
well, earlier, but especially verses 15 to 17, where there are three great principles of the Christian life. The peace of Christ in our relationships. The word of Christ dwelling richly in us. And as we saw last week, whatever we do, doing it with all our heart in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you see, if you go to verse 23... You see how that connects in. Whatever you do there is speaking about the relationship of slave and master or employer and employee, your work relationships, which we will come on to look at. And it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. There's an obvious connect. There's an obvious way that you can see that uh, coming in there. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. And as we saw last week, this is not the Bible coming with a list of rules. And saying, you keep these rules and you will be okay. It's coming with a basic principle. Do it for Jesus. Know Jesus and do it for Jesus. And that is a very important context for these instructions. Because what Paul is not now doing is saying, right, I've given you the theological bit. And I've given you the spiritual bit. And I've given you the church bit. Now I'm going to give you the practical bit about your families. And this is what you ought to do. He's saying... He doesn't give detailed instructions. He just throws out some one-liners that are tied in, that are absolutely rooted and grounded in this basic principle that whatever you do, you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. So wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. This is not, in other words, a new section. It's just saying, get your relationship with Jesus right, work on that basis And from that, you begin to work out your family. Um, If anyone ever comes to you and says, I have got ten principles or ten ways for you to have a happy marriage or five ways for you to rule your children or whatever it is, please take it all with a pinch of salt. It's not saying that we cannot learn. It's not saying that we cannot be counseled. It's not saying that we don't need help. It is saying that you cannot determine your relationships by following a list of code and rules. That's, you, you can't do that. That's, that's by definition. It's not a real relationship if you do that. So, I guess the other thing I'd want to say in that is we love to divorce our relationship with Jesus from our relationship in our families because our relationship with Jesus, we can make it a lot more ethereal. We can say, well, our relationship, that's the spiritual bit. That's when I feel close to God. That's when I'm in worship or whatever. Paul doesn't allow that, and the Bible doesn't allow that. And probably the most challenging bit of this is saying, Jesus saying, well, if you love me, this is how you will treat your wife. This is how you will treat your husband. This is how you will treat your parents. Or this is how you will treat your children. Let me also say this. That uh, it is, uh, this is perhaps an early Christian catechism. Luther called these verses house tafflin. Forgive my German. See, it was a multilingual service here. House Taflin. Household tables. Non-Christian moralists in the Greek world at that time had codes of domestic behavior. But here was one that was a code of domestic behavior, but somewhat different. Because it was done in the power of Jesus Christ. So, what we're looking at this morning is how to live as a Christian in your family. And how to live in the power of Christ in your family. And we'll look, first of all, at um, wives and husbands. Um, Risto, if the sun is bothering you, you might want to shut the window. <laughs> it's moving across, all right. If, but 
I don't want you to be too dazzled. Let's look first of all then at wives. Now, I'm not, please don't get me wrong, I am not um, attacking or despising all the many, many books and advice that there is, and it's good to read about things and all the rest of it. I have to say from a personal perspective, I usually find them fairly depressing because they either remind me of what I'm not or they give me a list of things to do that I think, am I ever going to do that? And I've almost, sometimes you wonder, you've almost given up. Um, there's, there's plenty of advice that you can get. And I think, sadly for me, one of the problems is that that advice is desperately needed because parents no longer teach parenting to their children, no longer example parenting to their children. Best way to learn is by example. But I think that um, what's here for me is not as difficult or as complicated or as hard as people want to make it. Let's just see what it says. Every area of life is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. This is describing a life where Christ is reigning in your marriage, in your family, and in your work. You don't compartmentalize. You don't have Jesus as lord of your religious life, but not lord of the rest of your life. For the context of the Christian woman who is married, that means submission. And that means that your calling is to honor and affirm your husband's leadership and help him exercise his role within the family. Now, instantly, all kinds of alarm bells go off. What? What do you mean submit? Submission is such a really bad word. It still carries connotations to me of a wrestler. Uh, me having my brother's arm twisted up his back going, go on, do you submit? Do you submit? It, it, it has that very, very negative image. But that's not what it is in the Bible. It's not an absolute surrender of will. God is the only absolute authority. We must obey God rather than men. I remember one woman coming to us and saying, well, I have to go and stay with my husband. I have to submit to him because the Bible says, but her husband was beating her up, nearly killed her. We said, no, you have to obey God and stay away from him. It's not right for you to commit suicide. Nor in this command is there any suggestion of inferiority. In the culture of the time, wives were inferior to their husbands, both in uh, the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, uh, women were in no sense equal. The Jewish philosopher Philo, for example, said that women are selfish, jealous, and hypocritical, and that married men are slaves. Uh, and when you go to a wedding and people make the usual jokes about, oh, you've lost your freedom now, just remember the kind of sexist, chauvinist rubbish where that has come from. It's been around as long as men and women, well, since uh, Eve persuaded Adam to eat the apple, and a good old man blamed her for doing that but there was Philo women are selfish jealous hypocritical married men are slaves I picked this up in one of the commentaries and I thought it was great um, because it shows how the attitude still exists it's a man called Musashi Sada who's a Japanese guy 17 years old he had a number one pop song in the in the Japanese charts uh, in the 1980s. I don't read Japanese, but I'm told that the song, when translated, was entitled, Your Husband and Master Proclaims. And this is one of the verses in the song. Before you become my bride, hear this. I, I'm glad the last three weddings I didn't hear any of this. Before you become my bride, hear this. You will not go to bed before I do. You will not get up after I do. Cook nothing but good meals and always look pretty. Keep quiet and follow behind me. Sadly, there are some guys here who are nodding their heads going, what's wrong with that? 
they are the young unmarried guys who <laughs> are going to stay single until they learn. Um, it's, it's incredible that that attitude would exist, but it did exist. And here's the point. Christianity came along and changed all that. In 1 Peter 3.7, for example, wives are called joint heirs. Now, supposing you move from a culture in which women are second-class citizens, in which wives are regarded as inferior, and there's a, a liberty that comes in there, what is one of the dangers? One of the dangers is that there will be an overreaction. And some people reckon, and I think certainly it's the case in 1 Corinthians, and possibly also here and in Ephesians, that there was a, a, an overreaction. And Paul is uh, giving some basic biblical principles to, to guide in our relationships. Why have submission at all? Well, there has never been a society which has worked without some kind of subordinationist ethic, as it's called. Now, what that simply means is there's some kind of authority. It means that when I drive down the Perth Road and there's a sign that says, do not turn right, the council have put that in, I submit to their authority. I may want to turn right, it may seem completely unreasonable that I can't get to turn right, but I submit to the authority of the council. There's a subordinationist ethic in that sense, which means that we find ourselves in a position that we, each of us actually, will find where we, we're doing something, we're submitting to something that we may not necessarily agree with. That was the social pattern of the time. There's never been a society where that was not the case. So some would argue, well, is this just social pattern today? No, it's not. It's in the Lord. Because here's a difficult thing. What does it mean to call Jesus Christ Lord if you're a Christian woman, a married Christian woman? It means that you submit to your husband. That's fairly straightforward. In the wedding ceremony yesterday where Marianne promised to submit to Hugh, it jarred for a lot of us. And I'll tell you why it jars. Because it just sounds, it doesn't fit with our culture. And it doesn't fit with our culture. Because our culture is out of sync and our culture has got it wrong. It fits with the word of God. And it's a great thing uh, that it, it is there in that sense. See, submission is not the negative thing that we think. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. In fact, let's turn to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Here you see an example of submission which is very different. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that whole concept of headship, the point is this, Jesus Christ submits to God the Father as his head. Yet, the Bible teaches that the Father and the Son are equal. How is that possible? It is a, an apparently contradictory statement. Well, when a woman submits to her husband... She's not submitting to him as an inferior or acknowledging him as a superior and not going, yes, dear, you know, because you're so wise and all the rest of it. That's normally called sarcasm. No woman really, th no woman really thinks that. It's an order that God has established for a particular reason. And the most obvious reason is simply this. If you can think about it logically, it's in any marriage there are two people, two people making decisions. What if one wants something and one wants the other? How do you decide? Well... The person who nags the most, the person who shouts the most, the person who's the strongest, 
The person who yells, that's, none of that is a good way. The person who manipulates the most. It is meant to be a partnership, but it's a partnership in which there is some degree of leadership and headship. Now, there's a lot of ways that, uh, to, to work all that out, and there's a lot of things that stem from that. But I believe that one of the big problems we have in the Christian church today is that we have a significant number of, of women who are just saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And what happens? It's the curse of Genesis. There's a desire to dominate the husband. There's fear. There's you don't trust your husband enough to submit to him. And that creates all kinds of problems. So it is, it's really important. I would personally say to any young couple who are coming asking about marriage, if you can't submit to this man, don't marry him. Don't. If you don't trust him enough, don't marry him. Because otherwise you're really, really heading for trouble. What about the husbands? The man is commanded to love. Seems kind of easier. But what's interesting here again and what's deeply countercultural is this is that he is commanded to love. How can love possibly be a command? Love is a feeling. Love is something that we have. Love is a, a phase that we go through. How can love be a command? And what's even more incredible here in Colossians is that, as some of you will know, that there are four Greek words for love, and three of which are usually used in a family relationship. One is eros, sexual attraction. The other is phileo, which is um, affection. You know, being your best friend, my wife, obviously there's a sexual element. My wife, obviously, you would hope that there's a kind of best friend element in that. I thought, again, it was just great to, for Hugh and Marianne um, to, to hear, just talking to them afterwards, Hugh saying, Marianne's my best friend. And just think, well, that's great, you know, that, that that attitude is there. But here, the word that's used for love is the word agape, which is a word that just means sacrificial love, the kind of love which God exemplified and demonstrated through giving his son Jesus on the cross. Now that's what the Ephesians 5 passage is all about. It is saying to the man, you love your wife with an unceasing care and a loving service for her entire well-being. It is Christ-like, sacrificial leadership with the ultimate good of your partner in view at all times. It is leadership by serving. It is not leadership by dictate. It is not leadership by authority. It is not leadership by imposition of personality. But it is leadership, and it's a leadership that is of love. And just as it is impossible for a woman to submit to her husband in the way that the Bible says, gladly and joyfully, intelligently, so it is impossible for a husband to love his, life in, to, to love his wife in this way without Christ being the center and the focus of everything. And again, you see, there's, to me, I, I said there's a problem with uh, wives in the church in Scotland today. I think there's a problem with husbands. And that is, basically, I have to say this for many of us as guys, we're spineless. We're not prepared to lead. We're not prepared to pay the price. We invest in our work. We invest in our hobbies. These are the things that we're keen on. We don't like the pain and hassle of relationship. So, you just let the wife get on with it. And worst of all, that occurs in a spiritual context 
where we now have a culture where it's assumed that it is, it is, it is the mother who's more spiritual, the mother who will look after the children spiritually and so on. And yet the father is meant to be spiritually the head of the home. In fact, that is the key. It is spiritually that is the head of the home. And to be honest, a lot of us as men, we just wimp out. And that's really what it is. We just, we don't want the conflict. We don't want the hassle. We don't want the trouble. We just, yep, get on with it. Do whatever you want. Leave me alone. And we end up with marriages that can end up in enormous difficulty. See, when it says here, do not be harsh with them, it's literally, do not be embittered. Bitterness can easily creep into a man's soul. Dick Lucas, in commenting on this passage, says this, A wife can disappoint a man's hopes and ambitions, failing to live up to his unrealistic ideals, for here, for her rather, which are often an unconscious compensation for his own inadequacies. Now, of course, that works both ways. A husband can often disappoint a wife's, the woman's hopes and ambitions. But then bitterness can creep in, and resentment, and fear, and it creates all kinds of problems. So the command for husbands is fairly straightforward. What does it mean to call Christ Lord? Love your wife sacrificially. And again, the same principle applies. Don't marry somebody who you are not prepared to love with all your life. You're not marrying a housekeeper. You're not marrying a flatmate. You're not marrying your mother. You are marrying somebody who you are promising to serve for the rest of your life and to give up things, not because you're nagged into them, not because to keep peace, but you give them up because it's for the good of the person you are committing yourself wholeheartedly to. What does it mean to call Christ Lord? If you're a married man here, it means to love your wife sacrificially. What about children and parents? Children, what's interesting here about the children is they're addressed as responsible members of the congregation. A letter written to the whole congregation. Paul doesn't talk about children. Paul talks to children. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. It's obedience rather than submission, and obedience here is stronger. And again, for the children, and to some extent, don't just think that that applies just when you're eight years old or ten years old. There is a, it's an expression of our commitment in the Lord that we obey our parents and that we think our parents have been appointed by God. Again, it's not an absolute authority. If your parents tell you to do something that's evil or wicked or wrong, you obviously you don't do it. And of course, it's an authority that can be abused, as it often is. But it's nonetheless the case that it is fundamental for the health of human society that children are obedient. Disobedient children are a real sign of decay in society. Romans 1.30 Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And in the list that follows, he says, they disobey their parents. 2 Timothy 3.1 Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. It is not an honorable thing. It is not a good thing. And it is a desperately sad thing about that children are disobedient to their parents. What is, of course, just as bad, if not worse, are parents who bring up their children not expecting them to obey and not teaching them that. Spoilt children, they are brats. 
But you have to feel sorry for the children because it's the parents who are spoiling them. There are no spoiled children in God's family. And you see, that's a Christ-centered obedience. Turn with me to have a look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. One of the most extraordinary verses in the Bible. Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That is the writer speaking about Jesus. Jesus learned obedience. And our children have to learn obedience. And if you are a child, it is very important for your own sake, for your family's sake, and above all, for the sake of your relationship with God, that you obey your parents. You honor them and you respect them. But look what it says about fathers. Fathers are not to irritate or to provoke their children. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Why are fathers addressed? Well, there are two reasons. One is because fathers are more likely to be the cause of, the pro- of problem children. That's just a, a, a generally accepted truism. But when you get men who back off from their families, you're asking for real, real trouble. Now, I meet guys constantly who say, I provide for my family because I go out and I work all hours so I can... Your child does not need a PlayStation. Your child needs you. And child needs your time. It's, it's just not good enough to say when you're 60 years old, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. Now, that particular charge, by the way, gets manipulated and abused all the time. You never spend enough time with your family and everyone always feels guilty about that. And no one ever says that they spend enough time with their family. Well, that's where the leadership comes in. That's where the organization comes in. That's where you determine time that you spend with your family and how that you how you're you're going to do it but it's not i think also it's not just fathers surely mothers are involved here as well for example if in back in colossians if you go across to chapter 4 and verse 15 give my greetings to the brothers at laodicea and to nympha and the church in her house nympha was the head of that household that's why she's named first oh that's why she's mentioned she may have been a widow um, she may not have had any family, but she's just as likely, like Lydia and others, to have had a household, which could well have included children as well. And heads of households in that sense are addressed. But I think to parents what is being said, perhaps particularly to fathers, but what is being said is what is needed is firm loving guidance, not slavery, not endless criticisms and endless harsh punishments. Again, uh, the Jewish writer Ben Sira in one of the apocryphal books <coughs> says this, He who loves his son will whip him often, bow down his neck in his youth, and beat his sides while he is young. No, and a thousand times no. The misapplication of the teaching in Proverbs about sparing the rod and spoil the child is one of the disgraces of the Christian church so often. Where people think, well, that's a, you know, to discipline a child, you just got to beat them. That's absolute nonsense. That's not what's being spoken of. And it's, it's a verse that has ended up in, in literal abuse in many, many ways. 
Now, all the argument about smacking and, and, and belting and all the rest of it, I grew up in a culture, I mean, I got the belt at school quite a few times, always entirely unjustified. It was real. I was a victim of, of injustice. But, you know, I got the belt, I got the ruler, I got the cane, I had a science teacher who had a particular malevolence for using various things from the laboratory to punish and torture poor uh, children like me um, who didn't do anything wrong at all, ever. And, you know, I would hate for us as a society to go back, to be honest, to a culture where teachers did that. I'm not going to go into all the arguments about parents you know, smacking their children and what's involved and so on. But I'm going to say this, that there is no in, um, authority in the Bible for anyone beating up, if you like, abusing a child. A light smack on the hand or something like that, that may be something completely different. But some of the physical abuse that is done, then people say, oh, we'll spare the rod and spoil the child. No, that cannot and is not, and cannot be justified, and is not justified biblically. In fact, here's what we're told here. Don't embitter your children. The word discourage is the only time that word is used elsewhere is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2, where it talks about encouraging giving and so on. It's the idea of enthusiasm and encouragement, and what it's basically saying is don't knock back your kids. The irritable, provoking parent discourages children, makes them timid, fearful, lacking in normal self-confidence. It's like the father who moans that his children are not strong like him, but he's used his strength to make them weak and to crush them. One man writes this, a good father spends time with his children, teaches, entertains and encourages them, and by his example as well as by outright verbal instruction, points them to Christ. Of course parents are to discipline their children. We read that in Hebrews 12. And if you don't discipline your children for the sake of an easy opt-out, for the sake of just you don't want to go through the pain of it, then you're not much of a parent. But parents are to treat their children so that they find it easy to obey them. The parent's duty is to live out the gospel to their child. It's... I can't describe how angry it makes me to see kids who grow up in homes where they don't really know the love of a mother and father. Maybe they know the, the love of one parent, and that's great, and I'd rather have the love of one parent than the dislike of two. I told some of you this story before, and it's, it'll never, ever go away from me, doing one of the discovery camps, um, taking a child back to his home, He'd been away, 10 years old. He'd been away from his home. He'd never been away before. And every single day, he had just a little bit of money. And every single day, he said, I'm, I'm buying a present for my mom. I'm dying to see my mom. I want to see my mom. I want to see my dad. And, uh, you know, he was a wee yaff. He was just dreadfully behaved. But anyway, we lived with him and he lived with us. And uh, I took him home. I took him to his flat. And we went in, knocked on the door, no answer. He said, oh, my dad will be in his bed. And he went upstairs, and he was so excited about seeing his dad. And all I heard, I was so angry when I heard it, I didn't know what to do. Uh, all I heard was his dad swear at him. You know, and I'll leave out the swears, but basically, what are you doing home, you wee runt? And it wasn't even affection. Get out. And it was just, I could not believe 
and the kid and the kid came down in tears and I didn't know what to do just left and I thought you're going to blame that child for growing up and being a Ned he's treated like dirt by his own parents it's just awful well we if we are Christian parents we have to give our children not spoilt homes but we have to give them a home where they see discipline where they see love where they see reality where they see Jesus Christ I think when Robert prayed he prayed about the wedding yesterday and also um, the wedding on 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 Thursday I'll tell you what was great about those two weddings was that for real absolutely for real Christ was at the center and it was, by the way, it was the best, best man's speech I've ever heard was the one yesterday. And I have no idea how you get dating in the free church college using the ESV into a best man's speech. But he managed it. It was just great. But what I loved about both those weddings was uh, the one up north had these vast extended families, you know, free Kirk mafiosi. Don't insult them or you're finished. You know, it was just, but it was brilliant seeing all these different the one uh, yesterday, so many people from different nationalities involved. But what came across was this love for Jesus Christ. And because of this love for Jesus Christ, yeah, every one of these families has problems and difficulties. But what stood out was this actually does work. You serve, you follow Jesus Christ, and God blesses you in your relationships with other people. So that's the the kind of I'm sure that that's where Paul is coming from here he doesn't just break in right I've been teaching you some theology now wife submit to your husbands he's saying whatever you do do it for the Lord when you get married do it for the Lord whatever you do for your wife do it for the Lord whatever you do for your husband do it for the Lord whatever you do for your children do it for the Lord we have fallen into an enormous trap where we have Women who are wandering around, nagging their husbands, saying, Oh, you do this in the church, and you do this at your work, but what about me? And they're not thinking, wait a minute, why, why are we compartmentalizing like that? We've got men doing the same thing as well. And they're not thinking that the whole thing should be all tied in together. That you become one flesh, you're one family unit, you, you work together. But you're working primarily for the Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I say, that applies across all our different relationships. This is not excluding people who are single. Uh, Paul, of all people, of course, he was single. Jesus was single. It's not saying, look, you're not going to be a real Christian unless you get married. That's just self-evident nonsense. But it's saying, whatever your relationships you, you look at them in the context of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that gives you the security. You see, that, that gives you security as a husband to love your wife sacrificially because you know that that's what Jesus did for you and therefore he will enable you to do it for your wife. That gives you the confidence as a wife to submit to your husband because you know that Jesus submitted to his father and because you know that Jesus died for you as well. That gives you the confidence as a, as, a, as a child to obey your parents because you know that God is your father. That gives you the confidence as a, as a parent to love and to discipline your children even when the, your children may be wandering away and you can't control because you know although you are not in control, God is. 
And he is the ultimate parent. So it, it ties and it fits. Now, I'll finish just by saying this. If you are not yet a Christian and you're thinking, whoa, what was all that about? Then let me just tell you, it is all about Jesus and you have to find out about Jesus and you have to see how it all works from that basis. You won't understand it without that. So get to know the Lord. If you are a Christian and you're struggling with some of your relationships, I am sorry, there is no quick fix. And you will find yourself struggling at many, many times in your life. There are people who can help. There are things that you probably can do. There are seasons of blessing and there are seasons of just trouble and strife. Um, You will live with it. But if you base all that you're doing and in all your relationships upon your relationship with Jesus, I think that you'll find in the grand scheme of things that some of the loose ends will be unraveled. Some of the other things will begin to knit together and, and tie together. And God will bless you in that. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray.